Also here, sorry, Tim, I'm going to pray for you anyway, so yeah, I'm sure you're okay with that. Tim, Tim recently had a medical problem where he had uh, a blood vessel rupture in his eye. It's related to his diabetes, and um, uh, he's uh, right now legally blind in his left eye. And um, that, Tim Tim's a, has a CDL and, and drives truck and heavy equipment, and so that has a potential of, of uh, jeopardizing his work. Um, but he's had, had a treatment, and the doctors are saying there's a chance that this might help to restore vision in that eye. So we want to pray for you too also this morning, Tim. I'm going to pray for Tim and Kathy and Bev, and then um, as we pray for the churches in our community, I want to pray for our brothers and sisters at First Christian Church, that's the church there behind City Market. And um, I want to pray for them just as they're on our, our list of churches that we're praying for, but um, they've had off and on for the last uh, few years. Did I go away? Do you still hear me? Okay. Uh, for the last few years, they've been without um, a pastor in, in regards to they've had an interim pastor off and on. They did have a guy come who was a pastor of the church, and then he left, and now the church is again without a pastor. And um, that's been a church in this community for a lot of years. Uh, pastor Bill Carson, when he retired, it's kind of been in some, some state of pastoral turmoil and trying to find someone to take over the church since he left. And he pastored there for over 20 years. And so I want to pray for them that God would provide uh, a pastor for them and that that church would continue to be a blessing to our community. So if you bow your heads with me, we'll pray this morning for our study and for these things together. Lord, as we um, come to you, we want to quiet our, our spirit and our hearts before you. And acknowledge that you're the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And Lord, as we've sung our praises of worship to you and have given thanks in our hearts, Lord, we acknowledge that you alone are worthy to be praised. You alone are worthy of our worship. And God, you alone are worthy to make our requests known. And so we pray, God, for our brothers and sisters at the First Christian Church here in town. As they're looking for and waiting for you to send them a pastor, I pray, God, that you would sustain that church. They've been a blessing to this community and, and building your kingdom and teaching your word for many years under the leadership of Pastor Bill. And as he's retired and has moved on, Lord, there's, there's been a need and there's just been no one to really step in and commit to that, to that church. And, and God, we pray for them and pray, God, that you would provide for that need. We also, Lord, ask that you would strengthen those, those believers there, Lord, in you, that they've grown their knowledge and understanding of who you are and of your will for their lives, Lord, that they would be encouraged today and not lose heart, Lord, that they would continue to run the race and continue to be uh, an influence and a light um, in this community and as they serve you and love you. We also want to pray for Tim, Lord, and ask that you would heal his eye God, that you restore to him the vision that's been lost. God, we ask that you would do this miraculously. And Lord, we know that you've done a wonderful thing in our bodies in creating us to be able to, to heal and to recover. And we pray, God, that, that that working would take place in his body. And also for Kathy, who had to undergo surgery this week, Lord, we pray that she would um, have a speedy recovery. You know, she would be able to get back to uh, work and caring for her family. And, and Lord, we, we ask to you to heal her so that she could be back in fellowship with us. And if she's at home today, I pray that she would rest. She went over to do it. And um, she would um, be that her husband, Frank, and our other family members would come alongside her. And Lord, if there's a way that we can come alongside Tim or Kathy through this, Lord, um, uh, show us how. We love them and we care for them. And lastly, we pray for our missionary, Bev, and Lord, the struggle that she's going through and the hardship that she's facing with this new uh, deception and betrayal by somebody who's been in the ministry for so long and so close. Lord, we pray for his repentance, true repentance. Lord, we pray that there would be justice. And in the same time, Lord, there would be mercy and grace and forgiveness. God, we know that you balance all these things out perfectly. And Lord, we pray that you would just protect Bev through this process and the corruption of the government that's there, and that you would encourage her and strengthen her. And Father, as we study your word this morning, we ask that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, guys, we're going to be in um, Exodus chapter 35 this morning. If you want to open your Bible, that's where we're going to be at. And as we read and study through chapter 35, I want to point out that it accounts for us 
the Hebrew people giving the items that were needed for the construction of the tabernacle. In short, that's, that's what this chapter is all about. It's very simple. They're, they're receiving the, the items and the people that are needed for the construction of the tabernacle. And there's been a long progression leading up to this point in regards to um, this all coming to fruition now at this time. And in this chapter, we're told that several times, um, I want you to take note of this as we read through it, that several times we're told that those who gave They did so because they were stirred in their heart and their spirit was willing. And there's an awesome principle there for us in regards to to how we should give and why we should give and and really when we should give. Um, And and when we see this um, uh, uh, this repeated statement that they were stirred in their heart and their spirit was willing. In other words, what we see by that is that they, they freely gave. They gave all that was needed because they wanted to, not because they had to or because they were supposed to. And, and, considering, and considering all that God had done for them up to this point that we've been reading and studying about in regards to delivering his people out of Egypt, um, and, and, and even more recently how God had graciously forgiven them of their idolatry and renewed the covenant with them and promised still to send his presence with them as they continued on, we can see here that their giving, which God brought forth as an opportunity for them to give now, is that their giving for the construction of the tabernacle was really a response of gratitude. It was a response of gratitude for the things that God had done for them, but also, like the Bible teaches this, that it was, it's a reasonable thing to do. It was a reasonable thing for them to do. Now, before we read through chapter 35, I do want to take a few minutes to close out chapter 34. I just don't want to leave you hanging there since we ran out of time last week. Maybe you guys had a chance to talk about it a little bit in your home group. Um, We did in ours, but um, we didn't really have a chance to, to read and study about what happened when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the, with the two new tablets. So if you look at chapter 34, and um, picking back up in verse 29, I'm going to read the last few verses here and then kind of briefly go over them. And it says for us in verse 29, it says, Now it was so. Now when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. And he'd been up there, of course, talking with God. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. So this was clearly an unnatural thing. He just didn't have, uh, you know, dove skin, as some of you ladies look to get. You know, nice, shiny, glowy skin. This was not that. Then in verse 31, Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them as commandments. Notice that. It doesn't say he gave them as suggestions. <laughs> and, and I laugh at that because sometimes I take um, the law or the things of the law, the commands, really as maybe those are just suggestions from God. And, and they're not. And he gave them as commandments all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out, and he would come out and speak to the children of Israel, whatever he had commended. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put on the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. Now, Um, Some of you are probably wondering about the veil. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on these verses as we jump into chapter 35 here really quickly. But I will point you to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, if you want to go out and study it, there's an explanation given for why Moses put the veil on. I challenge you to to seek the Lord in that and read and and figure out um, for yourself what that is all about. However, what we read here is that after 40 days and 40 nights of being on Mount Sinai... And remember, it was without any water to drink and without any food to eat, Moses came back down with these two stone stone tablets. It was the second set. The first set Moses had broke, right? The second set, God said, come back up here, cut some of these 
these tablets out of the stone and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something with them. And it probably doesn't need to be pointed out as we consider the, the, the state that Moses was in. It doesn't need to be pointed out, I think, that, that, that this was a miraculous thing for Moses to survive this long without food and water for 40 days and nights. But it's important for us to understand that Moses survived in spite of not eating and drinking because he had been in the presence of God. That's what, that's what we're being told here. That's what we're seeing here. And really, it's a testimony for us to the fact that all life is sustained by God because he is the creator. He's the giver of life. And being the creator of life and the giver of life, he's the sustainer of our life. Therefore, when Moses came down from the mountain, there was no indication. There was no indication that he had any kind of physical deficiencies as a result of not eating or drinking for these 40 days and 40 nights like we might expect. We might expect one to come down in that situation um, in, in bad shape physically. But what we see is that it was quite the contrary. Moses was full of strength, full of vitality. And, and we see that because when he came down, he didn't need a break. He didn't need to rest. He didn't even say he didn't take any food or water. He just got right to the business of calling Aaron and the other rulers here we see to him so that he might give them the commandments of the Lord. But even more amazing than Moses' physical vitality we see here was this, mir- this miracle of, that was presented before the people where Moses' face was shining with, a, with this radiance that ultimately struck fear in the hearts of the Israelites. But Moses' face, as we can see here and read, was shining as a result of this koinonia fellowship with this God, this, 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 with God, this, this close, intimate time that Moses had just spent with God. Remember, Moses had been allowed, he had requested and he had been allowed by God to see his glory. Lord, show me your glory. And Moses said, and God said, Moses, I'm going to let all my goodness pass before you and I'm going to proclaim my name. And that's some of the things that we talked about last week as we studied through the beginning of this chapter. And as God's glory had passed by, we see that as a result of seeing God, as a result of being in his presence, and ultimately as a result of coming to know God more, Moses was changed. There was a change in Moses. And this brings, a light to, uh, this brings to light for us, I think, another biblical principle, which is the fact that spending time with God and, and growing in, in our knowledge and understanding of him changes us. It should change us. It must change us. And this is why the Apostle Paul, in so many of his letters to the early church in the book of, Corinth, or a book of uh, for sure, Ephesians, and also in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 9, Paul writes to the churches and he says, I'm praying for you so that you may grow in your knowledge and in your understanding of God and in his will for your life. To know God. And Paul was praying for these things because it brought forth a change just like it did in Moses. And these purifying changes that we experience, they're they're made in our hearts and they're made in our minds and, and, they, and, and these changes um, are things that will be seen by others around us as we live and speak differently than we did before our God encounter. But I need to point out that a life lived with God should also have effect on our physical appearance in regards to really our face or what the Bible often refers to as our countenance. And over and over again, David speaks about that in the Psalms. And, and over and over again, God addresses this in scriptures as he's talking to his prophets and he says, what's the matter with your face? <laughs> as he speaks about the countenance that's there before his servants, before his people, before his prophets. Because there's a difference that should be outwardly that people can see in regards to our face or what the Bible refers to as our accountants in that, guys, the peace, the joy, the love, and the goodness that that is found in God's presence, it needs to be shining and radiating, radiating forth from our faces for others to see, for others to receive. People should go, I don't know what it is about you, but there's something different because they can see it on our faces, the way that we carry ourselves, the way that we go about this life. Now, when Moses went back up the mountain, 
Remember, he did so to reestablish the covenant. That's what we're told. And so when he went back up on the mountain to, to not only meet with God, but to, to so that he could know God more and see God's glory for himself, but it was also to reestablish the covenant. And in that, we see that God did not add any new commands regarding the law. We read through that last week. We studied through that in some detail. No, no new commands regarding the law, the sacrificial system, or the keeping of the feast or holy days. In fact, everything that God spoke to Moses during this, this last or final mountaintop visit, it was, it was a reminder. It was a reminder of what God had previously spoken and written, written on the, the first set of stone tablets. Now, in that, I want to point out something, and it may be a little bit of a stretch, but I, I, I want to point it out nonetheless, because, guys, the nation of Israel fell. They, they immediately after agreeing to enter into this covenant with God, uh, immediately after going, God, we will do anything and everything that you say, because this is what we want. We want a relationship with you. We want to be your people. We want you to be our God. That they, they, they had Aaron mold this golden calf, and they began to worship it, and there was sexual immorality and idolatry, and all these things were going on. And in and, and, and doing so, that they, they fell and they sinned, but nevertheless, God restored them. Now, we've, we've looked at this, and, and as you guys can, can and know in your own lives, is there's very relatable things going on here in that you and I, we still sin, right? We sin, and we fall short. And, and even in times when we go, yes, God, I want to follow after you. I want to recommit these things to you. I want to take these things out of my life. We go forward, and, 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 and lots of times we end up in the place where we once were. Paul writes and he says, man, the things that I want to do, and I know that God wants me to do, he says, those things I don't do. And the things that I will not to do, the things that God doesn't want me to do, he said, those things that I do, he said, the struggle that he talks about that goes on inside of us. But when we see here, guys, now connect all this together, when we see here that when Moses went back up for restoration to reestablish the covenant and that God didn't add any new, co new commands to the law, the sacrificial system, or to the keeping of the, the holy days or the feast, we're, it, we're showing something here. Because I think our human nature then as, as, as Christians is, is when, we, when we break a law or we sin against God is then we, we want to try to shore that up just like the Pharisees and we can get this really spiritual um, elite or, or religious attitude where we're like, okay, we just need more rules and more regulations so that we don't break the rules or break the regulations. And, 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 and God says, just turn away from those things and turn towards me. Don't try to self-regulate yourself in the sense that I'm just going to protect myself from sinning more by giving myself more things that I should do. Or, or even understanding that, thinking that somehow, well, well God would, would have me not do this and not do that. Or do this and do that. And there's things that, that God may have never, ever put on Yourself. And you know what the Bible refers to that? It's that's legalism. And it's a sick, sick thing that we can fall into. And when God just restated or reminded the people of what he already told them, really what he was saying is, is I'm all that you need. Come to me. Turn away from that and turn back to me. And just do what I've asked you to do. And God is like that. He doesn't, he doesn't make us go and do um, penance, Right? He doesn't go and make us do additional things. As a matter of fact, we have something so much more when the Bible tells us that God has now put his Holy Spirit in us, which is greater than, what, than anything that is in the world, including our own sinful nature. And it's not the rules and the regulations that keep us from sinning. It's the Holy Spirit of God who's given us a new nature, who has written his laws upon our hearts that empowers us and strengthens us to live holy and pure lives. Not more rules, not more regulations, but it's the love of God, the grace of God. Why? Because God says that he's not put that spirit in us. The spirit of the Holy Spirit is what we have. So, no new laws, just reminders. And so when Moses came back down, he, according to verse 32, gave them all the commands that the Lord had spoken to him. And this restating of God's commands by way of reminder, okay, 
by way of reminder, was important because the people had previously violated them. But more importantly than the restating or the reminding of these commands at this time is, or but the more important reason for the restating or the reminding of God's commands wasn't simply because the people had sinned. It wasn't because of what had been done. It was because of what God was going to do. And in our lives, it's the same thing. God, when we sin, when we fall, he'll say, come to me. He'll remind us of the right way to go. And he reminds us of the right way to go because he has a good thing for us in the future. And for the children of Israel, we see here in chapter 35 is that the restating of the commands, the reminding of God's commands, paved the way for this, the construction of the tabernacle, the place where God would come and dwell with them. And the tabernacle would be this place, this holy place where God would dwell with his people. And God, who is a holy God, was requiring his people to honor him in this way and to live holy lives. And a a very significant aspect of the law that was directly connected to the tabernacle was the Sabbath day of rest. And in preparation for speaking to the people about the construction, now think about this as, 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 as a contextual thing. Why here at the beginning of chapter 35 in verses 1 through 3 is this reminding of the Sabbath day rest, then, then directly following that is the, the, the account of the construction of the tabernacle and all surrounding it. There's a reason for it. And the reason for it is because there was a preparation taking place by reminding of that for the construction of the tabernacle. And Moses, as they did this in preparation, would remind them of that. And in chapter 35, verse 1, it says this. It says, Then Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together and said to them, These are the words which the Lord has commanded you to do. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh day shall be a holy day for you a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. Whoever does not work on it shall be put to death. And you shall kindle no fire throughout your dwellings on the Sabbath day. Um, now, as we, as we start here and as we, we read through the rest of this chapter, and really, guys, the remaining five chapters of the book of Exodus, which are all connected to this this, what we begin to read here, what we're going to see is, is that there was a lot of work for the Hebrew people to do. Now think about that. There was a lot of physical labor for the Hebrew people to do in regards to the building of the tabernacle, okay? But before they did anything, Moses reminded them of God's command to enter into their rest, into his rest. How? Through the keeping of the Sabbath. To enter into his rest by keeping the Sabbath. And, and this very same principle of entering into God's rest before we go ahead with the good works that he has appointed for us also applies to our own lives. In other words, anything that we do for the Lord must grow out of our rest in him and rest in his finished work on our behalf. Because it's the only because it's only in this place of rest and ultimately reliance upon God that we receive the strength and the power that comes from God through his Holy Spirit to do whatever it is he has called us to do. Remember, in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, this was the same message that was given to Zerubbabel when he was called by God to rebuild the temple after it had been destroyed. And God said this to Zerubbabel as in regards to entering into his rest for the work that laid before him. He said, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. But in addition to being empowered by God to do his works through our rest in him, ultimately what there is in this place is there's a, there's a, there's a true peace that is found. When you're resting in the work that God's called you to, as he empowers us and strengthens us, there's a peace that comes. A peace, the Bible says, that surpasses the understanding that is received when we put God first and when we enter into God's rest. And the strength and power and peace of God are what the Hebrew people were in need of at this time, at this moment. 
And Moses was reminding them as they went forward that it was found in honoring this command of God to enter into his rest. And this is what God was promising to give them if they were to keep his holy day of rest that he, if you look there according to verse 2, what was it appointed for? God had created it or appointed it for them. It was a gift for them. So in regards to this command to keep a day of rest, God said that whoever disobeys it, this is how serious he is about it. He said that whoever disobeys it and works on this holy day, those who will not enter into my rest, they shall be put to death. And even though this was speaking of a a literal physical death, guys, there's a spiritual principle here in that there really is no life to be found, no vitality of life to be found apart from God's rest. There's only struggle. There's only worry. There's confusion. No life to be found apart from God's rest, really literally apart from God's strength, God's power, and God's peace. No joy, no purpose, no hope, When we go through this life thinking this is what it really boils down to, there's no joy, no purpose, and no hope when we go through this life thinking that we don't need God or that we can do this life all on our own. And certainly no hope of eternal life. The scripture is clear in teaching us that, that there's no hope of eternal life apart from entering into and resting in the finished work of God that has been done for us by his son Jesus on the cross, entering into his rest. Not by works, not by power, but by his spirit, says the Lord. So these commands to keep the Sabbath day of rest, along with all the other commands of the Lord that the Moses had given to the people, were ultimately, we should see this, that at the foundational level of it, it was ultimately a call to obedience. It was ultimately a call to obedience. And before the Hebrew people did the work of building the tabernacle, this was necessary because God called them to the work of simple obedience because God had a specific way for this work to be done. And like we who live under the new covenant that has also been established through the blood of Jesus, we're also called to obedience. In fact, We who call Jesus Lord, Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 46 to us, he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? An act, a call to the act of obedience. And in light of this, we we understand that, that basic obedience is a prerequisite for doing the work of the Lord, for doing the things that God has appointed for us to do so that we may walk in them. Obedience. Because in the place of obedience, this is what really goes on. In the place of obedience, we're humbly confessing to and agreeing with God that his ways, which the Bible says are high above our ways, is the best way. And in the remaining chapters of the book of Exodus, we'll see this principle played out as God calls his people, and and this will come up over and over again as he reminds them through the process of constructing the temple, or excuse me, constructing the tabernacle, that it is to be done his way. He says, according to the pattern which he had given to Moses. And that same thing was told to Moses over and over again when he was on the mountain to begin with getting the instructions for the construction of the tabernacle. Moses, do it the way that I've told you you. And so this call to obedience was to simply go, you need to do it the way that I've told Moses and the way that Moses has shown you. There's a specific plan, a specific way. And what God says is my way, not our way, not in a way that we think is right, not in a way that we think is best. And there's such great importance given to this because the tabernacle, first and foremost, it was a replica of heavenly things is what scripture tells us in the book of Hebrews. That the earthly temple, the earthly tabernacle is a replica of the throne room of God, of heavenly things. And secondly, it was the place where God would manifest his presence. And lastly, it would also be the the, the place for worship. The central worship 
the central place for his worship, for God's worship, for generations to come. As a matter of fact, when you, when you study it out, what you'll see is the tabernacle was in existence for almost 500 years before the first temple was built. And God was saying, get it right. Obey me, do it my way, the way that I've shown you. And the importance of the tabernacle is revealed to us in the, this manner in which it has been presented in regards to all the tedious details of the structure and the furnishings that, that have been first accounted to us in chapters 24 through 31, which we read about in detail. But also in regards, the importance of it is also revealed to us in regards to how all of these directions that we are now seeing come to place or into, into fruition, that all the directions were carefully carried out by the Israelites, which is ultimately recounted for us in the rest of this book. And so in verse 29, verse 4 of chapter 35, we read on and begin to see this. And, in, and it says, And Moses, he then spoke to all the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded, saying, Take from among you an offering, verse 5, to the Lord. Whoever is of a willing heart, and let him bring it as an offering to the Lord, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet, thread, fine linen, and goat's hair. Ram skins, dyed red, badger skins, and acacia wood, oil for the light, and spices for the anointing oil, and for the sweet incense. Onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod, and in the breastplate. All who are gifted artisans among you shall come and make all that the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle, its tent, its coverings, its clasps, its boards, its bars, its pillars, and its sockets. See, once again, it's being given in great detail. And the great detail that's being given here, even in a second way, as repeated before the people, now as Moses is pointing this out, illustrates how important this is to God and for the people. And he goes on to verse 12 and he talks about the ark and its poles with the mercy seat and the veil of the coverings, everything inside the tabernacle. Verse 13, the table and its poles and all of its utensils and the showbread. Also the lamp stand for the light, its utensils, its lamps, and the oil for the light. The incense altar, its poles, its anointing oil, the sweet incense and the screen for the door at the entrance of the tabernacle. The altar of burnt offering with its bronze grating its poles and all its utensils and, and the laver and its base, the hangings of the court, its pillars, their sockets, and the screen for the gates of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle, the pegs of the court and their cords, the garments of ministry for ministering in the holy place and the holy garments for Aaron, the priest, the garments of his son to minister as priest. So in verse 20, all all the congregation of the Israel departed from the presence of Moses. Then everyone came, then everyone came whose hearts was stirred, and everyone whose spirit was willing, and they brought the Lord, the Lord's offering for the work of the tabernacle of meeting, for all its service, and for all the holy garments they came, both men and women, as many as had a willing heart, and brought earrings and nose rings, rings and necklaces. All jewelry of gold, that is, every man who made an offering of gold to the Lord. And every man with whom was found blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen, and goat's hair, red skins, and rams, and badger skins, brought them. Everyone who offered an offering of silver or bronze brought the Lord's offering. And everyone with whom was found acacia wood for any work of the service brought it. All of the women who were gifted artisans spun yarn with their, hair, with their hands and brought what they had spun of purple, or excuse me, of blue, purple, and scarlet, and fine linen. And in verse 26, it says, all, And all the women whose hearts stirred with wisdom spun yarn of goat's hair. The rulers brought onyx stones and the stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplates. In the breastplate. And the spices and the oil for the light and for the anointing and for the sweet incense, the children of Israel brought, here it is, a free will offering to the Lord. All the men and women whose hearts were willing to bring material for all kinds of work which the Lord, by the hand of Moses, had commanded to be done.
No. Really quickly, in regards to a timeline of events that's led us up to this place, we know that the Hebrew people at this moment, at this time, that through Moses they've received the command to leave Mount Sinai. They crossed over the Red Sea or through, through the Red Sea um, where um, the uh, uh, Pharaoh's army uh, uh, had been consumed and flooded as God brought his people across dry land. They made their way through the wilderness and came to, the, to Mount Sinai and they, 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 they made the covenant with the Lord and, and now they've received this command to leave Mount Sinai and to go on to the promised land. Furthermore, at this point, as I already mentioned, God had promised that in spite of their sin, having been restored, that his presence would be with them as they made this journey. But before the people would pack up and head out, they were to build a tabernacle. And this is a project that would take an additional several months to do before they went. And in preparation for the enormous undertaking, we read here in these verses that all the materials were gathered and all the overseers who God had called were appointed over the project. In light of this, we need to first notice in verse 4 where it makes it clear that this offering came from God's command. This was a command that God had given to, to, to receive this offering not from any clever fundraising techniques or begging on Moses' part. And this illustrates for us God's normal way, if you will, of channeling, of channeling resources to his work, which, by the way, which is by, the, which is by the, the, the gifts that are given from his people who have a willing heart. This is the means by which God builds and grows. And this biblical principle has been and will always be what guides us here at Livingstone Calvary Chapel. There will never be anyone up here, either me or myself, as long as I'm here, who will be begging or be having some kind of, of manipulation in order to get someone to give to a work that God's called us to do. It's unbiblical. And in regards to God's provision for everything that he calls us to do, we here at Livingstone Calvary Chapel adhere to the simple belief that where God guides, God provides. And if, if there's no provision, then it's, then it's not from God. It's that simple. It's his work. It's his ministry. And such was the case with the tabernacle. This was a work that God was going to do, and he was going to provide. And in regards to the construction of the tabernacle, guys, or in regards to the work that God calls our church to do, whatever it is in the future or whatever we've done in the past, we all know that God could very easily cause the money of the materials just to, 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 that are needed to appear miraculously, right? Yet what we see over and over and over again in Scripture and in our own lives is that God chooses to fund his work through the willing gifts of his people, and God works this way simply because we need to be a giving people. We need to be people who give because we are a people, the Bible teaches us, who have been given so much. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that we've been freely given. And he says, what do you have that we've, that we've not received from the Lord? What is it that we have that hasn't come from God anyway? And this idea of being a free giver and, and, and God calling us to be a giving people, it's echoed really in, in one verse. There's more verses, but it, the, the whole of it is contained in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. And Paul writing to the Corinthians, and he says, Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Why? It says, he says, because God loves a cheerful giver. It's not the, oh, oh, yeah. That's not it. God says, keep it. Don't give it. And being a godly leader, Moses here, being a godly leader, we see that he really creates this opportunity for this kind of giving to take place. Considering that after he had made known all the specific items that we just read through here, that would be needed for the construction of the tabernacle, the ones listed in verses 5 through 19, we then see immediately in verse 20 that Moses dismissed the people. They went home. 
Not so that they could get what they had back at their house, but so that they could decide on what God would have them do. There was no compulsion, and in doing so, it becomes clear that Moses, who gives us an example, he did not use manipulative techniques in order to get people to give. One of the commentators I read said he didn't, he didn't put up a flow chart of all the different 12 tribes and go, okay, let's see which tribe can give the most. <laughs> no manipulative techniques in order to get the people to give. So when the people came back and made their free will offerings, we see that they gave their gifts to the Lord and not to Moses and not to the nation. And I know that may just be, appear to be just a, 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 a play of semantics, but it's not. It's specifically there. Who do the people give to? Give to the Lord. And when you give to this church, you don't give to this church. We give to the Lord. It's his. And in verse 22, we're told that both, both the men and the women came to give. But clearly, not everyone gave the same thing, did they? I mean, that's also illustrated for us in the detail, not of just the needs, but in what people gave and how they gave and who gave. And there's an accurate record of this, that all the men, and there were men and women who came to give, but not everyone gave the same thing. Rather, we see, we see that the people gave what they could. And there were some who gave gold and precious gems. There were some who gave thread and fine linen. And still, there were others who gave goat hair. And in, in God's eyes, well, in our eyes, we might go, goat hair? That's, that's all you can give is some goat hair? You go out to your goat and you brush it and you bring it and that's your offering to the Lord? Come on, <laughs> right? But that's, that's not how God is. You see, God, in God's eyes, we know that the gift of goat hair was just as welcomed and just as important as the gift of gold if it was given with the right heart. I mean, go read the story in Luke about the, with Jesus in the tabernacle, in the temple, when, when the widow is there and she's, she's giving and she gives two mites. And the, and the idea behind it is not what you give, but why you give. And it's, 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 it needs to be with the right heart. So even though the idea, all throughout these verses, the idea of freedom and lack of coercion um, in the offering is repeated and emphasized throughout these verses. Guys, the fact of the matter is, is the people did not know what to give, when to give, or how to give until Moses led them. And I, I love that because what was illustrated for me in growing up in the church, and I didn't grow up in the church, but I mean, when after I got saved, and, 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 and grew in my knowledge and understanding of God and his ways, I always had a pastor Pastor Steve, and then also Mitch, who handed that down, who always said, it's, it's only job I have is like what Moses had here or the leaders have is just to make the need known. That's it. God does the rest. And God doesn't even have to do that. Sometimes doesn't even need us to do that. Lots of times he'll make the need known to your guys' hearts individually about things that are going on in one another's lives and how you guys are called to care for one another, how we're called to care for each other. And God stirs our hearts without even anyone having to point it out. And we go and we act on that because God calls us to be givers. But in that, I know that as a pastor, as the one who God's called to lead the church, all, I do, all I'm required to do is just to make the need known. I don't have to tell you what to give, when to give, or even how to give. To share the need. And that's what we see Moses doing here. Listen, guys, this is what God wants. This is the need. And where God guides, God provides. So let's see what he does. And that's what was going on here. But what is more impressive to me in, in this is that um, in leading the people, Moses also announced in verse 30 that the men whom God had chosen, um, or, or excuse me, that in leading the people, Moses also announced in verse 30 
that there was these specific men who God had chosen to head up and oversee the construction of the tabernacle. That's an important thing. That's an impressive thing that this is taking place. Because not only is God meeting the, 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 the material needs uh, of getting this done, he's providing the physical labor. And in doing so, he does an awesome thing. And I think we're going to wrap it up with this this morning. So it's going to take a little bit, but Debbie and you guys, I know there's a few this morning. If you want to work your way back up here, um, we'll get ready to kind of wrap it up. But why, why this, is, this is a pretty cool thing for me is because um, what we see in it is that God, it says in verse 34, it says that he put um, in these men um, his spirit, filling them so that, um, that, that as God's spirit was filling them, God manifested himself through them in the skill in the ability and in the knowledge that they had to construct the temple, the tabernacle. In all manner of workmanship, it says. And equally impressive, and this is what I want to wrap it up with this morning, equally impressive is what we read here in verse 34. If you look there now, it says that, that God put in the hearts of these leaders also the ability to teach. He gave them the skills, the ability, and the knowledge to do the actual work that needed to be done, whether it was with the sewing of the material or the engraving or the, 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 the metal smithing with the different types of metals or the wood that needed to be carved and built, all these things that were needed for that. But he also, God through his spirit, put in the hearts of these leaders the ability to teach others. And I think this is pretty cool that God did this, especially we consider that um, God could have just done for all the other workers that came onto the job site to do the construction of the tabernacle. He could have done for them what he had done for these overseers, giving them the, also the, the skill, the ability, and the knowledge and all manner of workmanship to do it. But God did not. It says that he gave it to these overseers, and the overseers, he gave them also the ability to teach others what to do, what God had shown them. Now, when I see that, I go, why would God do that? Why would God do that for some and then have them teach others? And then, and then it's very simple when you begin to think about it on, on just a, a, a rudimentary level. And I know that God did this, did this because it illustrates for us how God has designed it that, that we not only have a need for him, but we have a need for each other. This was a, this was a, a, a group effort. And God said, I'm going to teach you and you're going to teach others. And when we look at the New Testament and the things that God has called us to, if you remember when Jesus left his disciples there on the mountaintop, when he ascended into heaven, what did he say to them? He said, go therefore and make disciples in my name, baptizing them and teaching them, what? Everything that I have taught you. And guys, there are so many people in the world that we live in today that have angst in their heart towards the church because they've been let down, because they've been offended or sinned against, because sinners who go to church sin, and they, they were on the receiving end of it. And we've all been there. And we all can find reasons to not go to church, to not be in fellowship with one another. But over and over and over again, we see it, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, that God says, you have a need for one another. And the things that God has put into us, some of the things that God has put into you, there are other people who are sitting around you that God says, now you teach them. And you go, I don't know how to do that. Well, that's okay because God says that he even gives us that ability to do that. God gives us that ability to do that. What do we have to have? We have to have the right heart, a willing spirit, a right attitude to not only be teaching and sharing our lives and discipling one another, but the right heart, the right attitude to receive what others are teaching us. Imagine if these guys who had been, been empowered by God to have all the skills and all the talents and the knowledge for all the manner of workmanship and had been given this heart, this ability to teach others. Imagine if they had gone forth and do it and the people that they were leading said, nah, we, we can do it. We know what we're doing. It would have been chaos. And the work that God had set forth would not have been completed. 
And I point this out, guys, because over and over again in the New Testament, we're, we're, we're told that we are a body, one body, many members, and we each have a specific purpose and role in building God's kingdom and doing the work that he's called us to do here in our community, in our neighborhoods, in our schools. He's called us and he's equipped us. And in doing so, he says, you have a need for each other, that we don't have to do it on our own. God's designed it that way. And in doing so, when God did this, he blessed all of Israel so that the construction of the tabernacle would take place just as he commanded. And when we do the same thing, when we work in accordance to God's will, when we receive the gifting and talenting and the strength from him and we're willing to share with others and be involved in each other's lives, the same will, take true, will hold true for us and that God will bless the whole of us. God will bless our church. God will bless our families. God will bless our community, our schools, our neighborhoods. And there will be forth a real change and we'll be able to see it take place around us. But it only comes when we understand that we have a need for God and we have a need for one another. Let's pray. Lord, so this morning we confess our need before you again. God, ultimately we are in need of your forgiveness of your son Jesus Christ and the salvation that he offers to us by grace through faith. And Lord, as you call us then to follow after you and to walk in obedience to you, to share our faith, the things that you've taught us, the hope that you've given us, the love that you've put inside of us. As we, God, teach and share those things with others, we, again, God, confess our need for you. Knowing, God, that you're the giver of life, the sustainer of life, that you're also the giver of salvation and the sustainer of our salvation. And, Lord, because of this, we want to enter into the rest that you've provided for us today. Lord, I know that it's a scary thing when, you, when we hear stuff like this, that you've called us to go and share our lives, share our faith, um, to share the things that you've put in us with other people. That can be an intimidating thing, Lord, for us to do. But Father, we want to be willing for whatever you have. We want to be like um, Samuel and Isaiah, who both said, here I am, Lord, send me. And so, God, as we go out from this place this morning, may we know, Lord, that we don't go alone, that you go by our side, and that we, as a gift from you, have each other. We have this family of those who believe in you, brothers and sisters, Lord, to walk with, to strengthen us, to teach us, to encourage us. And so, Lord, may we walk in that role that you've called us to. May we have hearts to receive. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.